Welcome to Mudrooms, a community storytelling event that in normal times for the past nine seasons has been presented in front of a live audience in Juneau, Alaska. I'm Alita Buss, one of your co-hosts for the next hour. For our 10th season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've trimmed down our schedule to three events and have asked our seven presenters to record their stories from the comfort of their own homes. Each season, we select a few local nonprofit organizations to whom we donate admission fees. Obviously, that's been disrupted by the pandemic also, but we do still have a nonprofit we'd like to highlight for this show, the Friends of the Marie Drake Planetarium. Here's Steve Kosis with a little bit about them. The Friends of the Marie Drake Planetarium is a nonprofit and has been run by volunteers for 30 years. The Planetarium provides diverse and free astronomy education to people of all ages and levels of astronomy knowledge. Our shows serve the public, school classes, and community groups. In early 2020, we gave four shows with our new digital projector, an out-of-this-world educational tool. We look forward to sharing this new system at our free shows once the Planetarium can be safely reopened. If you wish to donate, go to mariedrakeplanetarium.org you may donate by PayPal or check. Donations are tax deductible. Funds raised will provide busing for students to planetarium shows. School budgets are tight, so this will help students enjoy field trips to the planetarium. Thank you. We look forward to returning to live events. In the meantime, my co-host Jim and I are pleased to introduce the following stories on the theme, The Goods Are Odd. Our first storyteller is Jim Wilcox. 65 years ago, the Coast Guard illegally discharged Jim and Juno so they wouldn't have to pay to send him back to his home state of Michigan. He has been here ever since, leading a colorful life, building businesses, and amassing a collection of bedpans so impressive that it once landed him on the radio with Paul Harvey. Please welcome Jim to Mudrooms. I came from northern Michigan. I was in the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard sent me to Ketchikan, Alaska, and that was in 1957. I was stationed on the Coast Guard Cutter Sweetbriar, and the Sweetbriar, after about a year and a half in Ketchikan, was transferred to Juneau. So my first day in Juneau was a beautiful, sunny Saturday morning, and one of the guys that was formerly stationed here in Juneau was pointing out the, the governor's mansion and the, the old courthouse up on the hill, so I run down, got my camera, and I went up town looking for the governor's mansion. And I got up there about 11.30 or so, and across the mansion was a big rock wall. So I was standing over there taking pictures, and the front door opened, and this lady come out on the steps and stood there a minute, and she motioned me to come over. So I walked over there, and she introduced herself as Mrs. Egan, the governor's wife, and asked me my name, and. We talked a little bit about the Coast Guard. She asked me if I had had lunch yet, and I said, no, I didn't have lunch. And she asked me if I would like to stay and have lunch with him, and I said, sure, that's a good idea. So we went out in the kitchen, and she introduced me to a young man sitting out there, seven or eight years old, uh, named Dennis. And uh, she said the governor will be here shortly, and just a couple of minutes, he come bursting through the front door, and came right up to the kitchen and she introduced me to him and he shook my hand and we were talking and we were sitting there and we were eating and he was kind of, he was in a hurry definitely to tell the way he was eating. And after about a half hour, 
he jumped up and said, I've got to get back to work. And he shook my hand and said, I'd like to see you again sometime. And he left the kitchen and there was somebody at the front door that he stopped and talked to for a minute and then left. And after he left, the guy was at the front door, come over and said that the governor said to drive me back to the ship when I was ready to go. So I said, thank you. And we finished eating. I thanked Miss Egan and Dennis and uh, went out to the front door and the big black limousine was sitting there. So he decided to drive me around through town so I could see what downtown looked like. And uh, on the way back, he said that the governor said to ask me if I would like to come and work at the mansion sometimes when we're in port on days or nights that they have stuff going on at the mansion. I said, sure, I'd love to do that. So he dropped me off at the ship and the guys on deck got quite a kick out of me getting out of the governor's mansion, the governor's big car. And it brought up all kinds of questions and we got underway on, on Monday morning. And after we were out a little bit, the skipper called me up to his cabin and said that he had heard that I had met the governor and one thing and one know what happened. And he was quite uh, enthused about that and thought that was a heck of a deal. And so we went out and we come back in on early Friday evening and the governor's car was sitting on the dock and the driver got out and run over and handed one of the guys that was on deck an envelope and he took off and ran up to the skipper's cabin and in about a minute the skipper called Jim Wilcox to come to his cabin and he asked me, he told me at the governor requested that I come up and work at the mansion and he asked me if I wanted to. I said, certainly. So I run down and got in my dress blues and went up to the mansion and they had me uh, taking care of the door, opening the door for people and hanging up their jackets and stuff. And after about an hour and a half, the governor come walking over and he had Dennis by the arm and he said, take him downstairs and keep him down there until I holler for you to come up. And he told Dennis, you mind what Mr. Wilcox says to do. So we went downstairs with Dennis and we played all some games he had down there. I can't even remember all the games, but we played it was about a little, probably a little over an hour. And the governor came and stuck his head down and said, come on upstairs. So we went up there and there was about 10 people cleaning up. So I helped clean up, pick up glasses and all kinds of stuff was scattered all over the place. And the driver come over and said, uh, let's go, uh, I'll take you back to the ship. So on the way back to the ship, he handed me a couple of envelopes. And I said, what are these? He said, oh, you can read them when you get on board. He said, it's, it's uh, the governor thought you might want them. So I got on board the ship and I read one of them and it was a request from the governor to come up to the mansion and, and help out. So I thought that was kind of funny and they weren't, they weren't even uh, labeled or anything. So anyway, uh, we went out that next week and we come back in and, and we went up to uh, Seattle to dry dock. So we were gone for quite a few days. And when I got back, I, I met the driver on the, on the street and uh, asked him how things were going. And he said they were going good. Uh, they didn't need me anymore at the mansion because they hired somebody full time. So I said, okay, that's, that's fine. So I went ahead and got discharged in Juneau from the Coast Guard 
And one day I was going down the street and here the governor was across the street and he recognized me and come running over and shook my hand and wanted to know how everything was going and what I was doing. And he was sure glad that I decided to stay in Juneau. And uh, then we went on about our business and I've met him, seen him a couple of times after that. And every time he comes over and shakes my hands and talks what I'm doing and what's going on. And that was the way I met the governor of Alaska. Thank you, Jim. What a classic Alaska story. I've heard that about Governor Bill Egan, that he was really good about remembering people. Liz Eilers has lived in Juneau for 10 years. She moved here in the summer of 2011 after accepting a seasonal bartending job. She was immediately struck by the immense natural beauty of Juneau and now calls it home. In her off time, what Liz enjoys doing most is getting outside, trying a new recipe in the kitchen, or spending time with friends and family. During the most difficult transition of my life, a casual friendship transformed into an enduring bond that bridged the narrow divide between myself and my future husband. The corgi across the street immediately caught my attention. That is exactly what he intended. He made sure to let everyone in the neighborhood know that they were on his territory. I shared a house with my boyfriend at the time, but whether we knew it or not, we were living there only at the pleasure of this particular canine. He was so cute. This corgi had two different colored eyes. One had a corona of light blue blending to a darker navy towards his iris. The other eye, a dark espresso brown. Two perfectly erect ears coming to a triangular tip and a fox-like face. He was smaller than other Pembroke Welsh corgis, not in height, but length, which was a particularly endearing trait to me. And lastly, when his mouth was agape, it always looked like he was smiling. Gradually, the corgi let me pet him and even befriend him after a bit. I would make sure to pet him if I was outside when I would walk to my car or on my way walking to work. Sometimes, during our extended sessions of pets and conversation through the fence, I would ponder how the owner would react if I just let myself into his yard for more prolonged corgi time. But no, I could never be so brash. Pets are like kids to some people, and the last thing I wanted to do was garner a bad reputation in my new neighborhood. I learned the dog's name was Badger, and over the years, Badger and I would develop a routine of him greeting me at the fence and me petting him through the gap in the door for however long my schedule allowed. My boyfriend and I started asking one another as soon as one of us got home, did you see Badger outside? If I hadn't seen Badger yet that day, I would make a point to visit him, because I was sure he must have missed me and my luxurious pets. Badger is no ordinary corgi. Badger is the king of what can only be described as his own island in the Flats neighborhood in downtown Juneau. Badger has an entire track that he's worn down that circumnavigates his yard. If Badger is outside, then he takes his sentry very seriously, protecting his yard. He has a job, and nobody's going to do it better than Badger. Badger, because of his proclivity for being outside and his very design, is always filthy. Would that ever stop me from petting him? No. Badger also has periodontal disease, so that means his breath can wake the dead. Did that ever stop me from getting as close to him as possible as the fence would allow? No. Do I have an affinity for dogs in general and act like that with most people's pets? No. Badger is like no other dog I've ever met. I admired Badger's loyalty to his pack. If you were in it, he would unabashedly detour any outsiders. I admired Badger's loyalty to his pack. If you were in it, he would unabashedly deter any outsiders. If an imminent threat, as Badger perceived anyway, wasn't apparent, Badger would let his guard down and be vulnerable, rolling onto his back and inviting a quick belly rub. 
Badger's specialty is greeting his loved ones by putting his front paws up on your legs and pushing his tush out. This is a favorite stretch of his, and it also allows the receiver to scratch his belly. Badger will demonstrate that he understands that although you may need a break, he always has your back by plopping his round rump onto your feet after you sit down. It was all that and more that attracted me to him, made me want to earn his trust, made me want Badger to like me, made me want to open up that fence and invite Badger into my world. While my relationship to Badger was being forged over those years with mere routine pets through the fence, my relationship at home was crumbling. We were going through the usual growing pains that long-term relationships face and also a series of traumatic events that proved too much for our relationship to endure. And so, after three years of being Badger's neighbor, I found myself moving out of the house that my boyfriend and I had worked so hard on making a home. In the last couple months of living there, luckily, I had worked up the nerve to mention to Badger's owner, if he ever needed a dog sitter, boy was I up for the job because I was so fond of his little dog. Of course, I thought nothing could come of this because what pet owner lets a virtual stranger watch their dog? Turns out a lot of them do. My dream came true. For the next two years, Badger and I would come to spend a lot of time together. His owner traveled frequently, and there was never a moment that I didn't want Badger's companionship. Badger helped me feel less alone. Exercise was one of my favorite distractions from the emotional pain, and any time I wanted to take a walk, Badger was ready. We walked in all types of weather and all hours of the day and night. If I felt like cuddling on the couch, Badger would oblige. Badger was unusually perceptive when I would cry, timidly approaching me and asking me with his eyes if he could come in closer because he wanted to comfort me. Those years were undoubtedly the most tumultuous and grief-stricken I have ever experienced. I was going through a thousand percent change in my life, and whether I was shedding tears into Badger's furry double coat or walking with him or just lounging on the couch with him, Badger would consistently usher me to the other side of hopelessness. I got a lot of gifts from that time in my life. I became involved in the community in ways I had never imagined. I volunteered for lots of different events at the Juno Arts and Cultural Center. I fell back on my love of theater and sussed out opportunities to perform on a stage whenever I could. I enrolled in an early morning fitness boot camp. Uh, I joined a gospel singing workshop. I enrolled in a class on how to decorate with buttercream frosting. The list goes on and on and on. I put myself out there and I got everything I needed in return. Eventually, I dated here and there, sometimes optimistically, but mostly casual dates with a tone of imminent demise. I tried Tinder and that's all I'm going to say about Tinder. Instagram is a very savvy app. The technology is amazing. Instagram figured out if I wanted to follow people who it had found in my contacts, because I figured that if I knew you well enough to have your phone number, then yes, I wanted to follow you on Instagram. I paid little attention to who I actually was following, except for one profile. Instagram told me that he was an educator and he had beautiful blue eyes. His posts were incredibly well-written and funny. His posts ranged from nostalgia for his kids growing up too fast to tweets telling a rainbow to f*** off. His dark humor and irreverent subjects of his profile kept drawing me to it. I found myself wanting to find a witty comment to respond to one of his latest posts, but would end up feeling inadequate and choke. 
I asked some friends who had taken his courses and loved his teaching style to tell me more. And what they told me made me curious. Hopeful is how you could describe me the day I discovered that my Instagram crush's phone number was programmed into my phone. So you can imagine my astonishment when I discovered that not only did I have his phone number, but realized that I had had it in my phone for three years. Why? His phone number was in a slew of information I saved if ever a Badger emergency were to occur. Badger's owner had given it to me because my now crush lived right next door and could help out in a pinch. I figured if there ever were a sign, well, then this was it. I slid into my crush's DMs, as the kids say, introduced myself, and explained why I had his number. Promptly asked him if he'd like to have a drink with me, and to my delight, he agreed. We learned that Badger has intertwined our lives on multiple levels. For years, we had lived within proximity of one another, yet never crossed paths. He'd seen me perform on stage, even complimented me on my performance afterwards, and I had gotten flustered and shy in the moment. We had mutual friends, but were never at the same social events. We would both do our civic duty of in-person Senate testimony for similar causes, never bumping into one another. In the 18 months we've been together, we often luxuriate in the details of our what-ifs and could-have-beens, reviewing each other's perspectives the day I messaged him and asked him out. Today, we are engaged to be married, and we often share badger-sitting duties, all the while offering thanks to that geriatric corgi whose dense mass somehow held us in each other's orbit until we were ready. Kut Hitch has lived on Aquan lands for eight years now, where they work on the prevention team for the Alaska Network on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. They originally moved to what is currently known as Juneau from their hometown of Pelican to go to school at UAS and have enjoyed the lower rainfall here. Kut Hitch enjoys photography, outdoor activities, culinary arts, and mailing letters and making mail art for people who live elsewhere. Welcome, Kut Hitch. The goods are odd, including this story. Hello, Gunalchish Johan. Thank you all. My name is Kud Khich Cha'adehatnayu. Please forgive me if anything I say offends you. Um, I'm Chukunadi Klinket from the Pelican Huna area, Glacier Bay. That's my homelands. Um, I grew up in Pelican and I was fortunate enough to grow up with my best friend Brianna every single summer. Um, as she went between California and Alaska. Uh, One summer, when we were maybe 17, oh, we were feisty teenagers. The song Woman by Kesha hadn't come out yet, but that could have easily been our theme song. I would say for this time, the theme song would definitely be Umbrella by Rihanna. (laughs) So... We decided to go camping one time. It was probably August, 6 p.m. It was starting to get dark, but we decided, we were like, let's just do something different. So we packed up some stuff and went, got our kayaks, and as we were going, paddling over to First Island, maybe a five-minute paddle away from the tidal flats in Pelican, we, um... We hear the sea lions, and then we see them, and then they're right next to us. Uh, (laughs) The seals are watching from the rocks 
the tide was just right. So they're just sitting there pretty looking out at us <laughs> as these sea lions were circle and circle. The weather was starting to get worse. The, the winds were picking up and the rain was starting to come down. Brianna and I definitely were listening to music, jamming out with our Echo. It's a waterproof speaker that I had and floatable and all kinds of stuff. Um, we were determined to, we weren't going to turn back. We're like, let's just, we're going to camp out. It's going to be fine. So we get to the first island and secure our kayaks so they don't float away or anything in the tide and the worsening weather and haul our gear up to the site. Everything is wet. (laughs) Brianna and I had a few laughs when we were hauling our gear up too, because the trail was so muddy. We just like, we're basically falling up it. <laughs> um, every the ground is saturated. Like apparently the rains that we had been getting were really sticking around, and the sun did not dry out the moss or the the land at all. So we realized we didn't bring any dry firewood, and that we would probably have a pretty cold night. We focused on a shelter. We wanted to make a C kind of shaped like the letter C shape shelter for us because we wanted to be dry underneath our sleeping bags, but also be covered from the rain. Unfortunately for us are, you know, when you don't know a lot of knots and you just tie tie a lot, sometimes those knots don't work. And our shelter ended up being an L shape, AKA a rain catcher. So, we realize we're just not going to get a fire together. So we just cuddle together real close and say, okay, let's ignore that noise and that noise and just try to sleep through the night. I am definitely a very paranoid sleeper when I'm camping. Uh, Brianna, poor thing, probably didn't get a wink of sleep. I know I didn't. And had me saying every 15 minutes, Brianna, did you hear that? What was that noise? <laughs> oh gosh. At one, one in the morning or so we woke up cause we, or woke up, we got up because we're like, okay, we got to pee. Uh, and we had to assess, make sure our kayaks weren't going away or anything. And we didn't see them floating and we decided not to go down the trail too far, but And we also decided that it was too dark and too stormy to leave the island. So we just cuddled back together and tried to stay warm. When daybreak came at about 5 a.m., we decided to pack up our stuff as fast as we could and just go sleep at home. It wasn't worth it anymore. So we packed up all our soaking gear and drug it down the trail. We were like zombies. We did play music, though, because we were worried about animals and critters, and we wanted them to know that we were awake. So, as we're bopping along to our Rihanna and Kesha, going down the trail, we definitely noticed that the rain is letting up. Thank goodness. By the time we get to our kayaks, they definitely got some water in it, so we had to work on emptying them before we filled them with our stuff. Um... And we could hear the seals and sea lions out there, out yonder on the, on the rocks in the water. Um, and we could see the rip too of the, of the current 
between the tidal flats and first island and we could tell that we were just going to be pushed right into where we launch or we bank our kayaks by my house so that was nice um eventually we got back to my house and <laughs> we were banging on we hauled our kayaks in hauled our stuff up to the front porch and my mom had locked the door my mom and dad lock our door and um Every now and then we get caught outside, locked out. So we almost set up camp on my front porch because the door was locked, but we decided to knock and my mom opened the door just in a daze, sleepy, and was like, what are you two doing here? And we let my two cats in at the time and we're like, it wasn't a good time. We got drenched and we need sleep <laughs> and food and water. <laughs> So, the goods are so odd in this story, but honestly, all of the bonding and, ex like, the fact that I get to tell you all this story, uh, that doesn't, you know, that's okay when the goods are odd. <laughs> um, and this is just one of those stories of Brianna and I, and how it's like, Mother Nature and the world was sort of challenging us in our friendship because it wasn't all nice and peachy cream, but we made it through and we're still friends today. And I think it's experiences like those where the goods are odd that really make friendships so strong and special. I'm gonna cheese Brianna for being such a fun adventure friend and going through with all the crazy adventures that we've done in the past, whether it be you or me instigating them. And to you all for listening to me. May happiness be with you, no matter how odd the goods are. Steve Kosis is a 67-year-old retiree who has lived 23 years in Juneau, 1978 was the end of the London to Kathmandu overland route for budget travelers due to the Iranian Revolution and the assassination of President Daoud Khan in Kabul. Steve's story focuses on the latter. 1978, I was honorably discharged from the U.S. Navy after six years active service. I had saved up a year's salary, which is about $6,500. And I decided to travel around the world. So this found me in London, where I got on the magic bus to travel on the hippie trail. The hippie trail started in the 50s and lasted to the late 70s due to politics. And it was the route that budget travelers would take from London to Kathmandu. So I went to Athens, and then Istanbul. In Istanbul, I met two traveling companions, the Italian Raymond, who was very friendly, but spoke little English. His main phrase was, no problem, no problem. The second traveler I met was Mango, and Mango was from Australia. He loved rugby. He would play with locals, even if it was over 100 degrees. So we proceeded along the Black Sea coast, eastern Turkey, into Iran, Isfahan, Shiraz, and then Tehran. 
In Tehran, we met the final three members of our motley crew. There was Peter from Holland, and he was a do-gooder. He loved helping people. And then we met Benedict from Sri Lanka. Now, Benedict was a wheeler dealer. He had purchased a Mercedes-Benz in Germany, and he's going to drive it 10,000 miles to Sri Lanka, where he could sell it for a profit of two years' salary for him. So he was looking for companions to share in gasoline costs. And so the five of us joined up. I was the only person who did not drive, but I was allowed uh, to join the crew because I was the only one with military experience, and it was felt that that might come in handy. So we proceeded out of Tehran, east to the border with Afghanistan. We were told two rules for traveling, the only paved road in Afghanistan, half built by the Russians and the Americans, and that was to only travel during the day. If you hit someone, keep going, don't stop. And when you get to your hotel, make sure it has a central courtyard with a gate you can secure. So, we made it safely to Kabul. We were there for about a week, and Mangal Murphy and I were hiking the hills overlooking the city where the old city walls were, and that is when we saw the jets. I had served four years on aircraft carrier, so I could easily identify them as military jets. It was unmistakable when they started launching their missiles at President Daoud's palace, which was right next to our hotel. So Mango and I hurriedly returned to the hotel, and we did two unwise things while the fighting was going on. Unwise thing number one is we went up on the roof to watch the action. And it was exciting. There are now foot soldiers and some tanks, and the jets were still flying. However, we started hearing gunshots in our area, and we realized we could be mistaken for snipers. So in fear, we hurriedly went back into the hotel. The second unwise thing we did was that the staff of the hotel had abandoned it to the guests. We were mostly Westerners, except for two men from Iraq who were there for a conference. We depleted all the food. We had water. And Mango and I decided to go out to look for something to eat. So we did locate some melons, which are very common in Central Asia, However, we ended up seeing some scenes that I wish I had not seen. So once again, we were hurriedly returning to the hotel. We started banging on the door and identifying ourselves, but no one was letting us in. So we were starting to get quite nervous because there were some menacing people outside. And eventually, the other guests let us in, which we were very thankful for. Now, the scene in the hotel was that the Westerners, particularly the ladies, were quite concerned about their safety. At this time, it was clear that there was a coup occurring. So we calmed everyone down and waited out two days of fighting in the hotel with no staff. So when the shots and fighting ended... We left, for the, we left the hotel to get visas for Pakistan, which was the next country we were going to enter to the east. 
The Pakistani embassy, though, was demolished, so no visas, which was a worry. I also visited the U.S. embassy, where I saw many other Americans who were asking to be taken out of the country. They seemed to be mostly ruling class, probably staying at the Intercontinental Hotel. I was staying at the Hotel Mustafa, and the airport had been bombed and was not operational. There was no public transport out of the town, but we had a private car. I was able to leave a message for my parents that I was safe at the embassy. So returning to the hotel, the five of us left Kabul for the Khyber Pass and for Pakistan. Now, the Khyber Pass area, even in settled times, is lawless. Now, this was an unsettled time after the government had fallen. So, heading eastward, a number of times we were stopped by roadblocks. There were armed civilians. And when someone is pointing a gun at you, there's this strange sensation that you look into the barrel of the gun and you imagine the bullet coming at you. However, we got through these experiences by laughing and smiling and being nonchalant. The people realized that we were harmless travelers heading east on our own. We're no threat, so we're allowed to pass at all these stops. We arrived at the Khyber Pass, where we were all quite nervous, having no visas, heading into Pakistan. The Pakistani officials looked us over, and because of the situation, they allowed us to enter into Pakistan. So, that was the end of this particular part of my story. There were many other stories after this. I did end up spending a year traveling around the world which cost me about $6,500. Let me just say really quickly that we proceeded through Pakistan and into India, and Amritsar is where we kind of split up. Myself and Raymond and the Australian Mango headed up to Kashmir to go trekking. Benedict headed down to Sri Lanka with the car to sell, and Peter had stayed behind in Pakistan to do good work in one of the villages we passed through. So that was my story of the Motley Crew. As the manager of the old Red Dog Saloon in Juneau, Sammy Colleen Baker supported many local performers, but she also launched her own singing career, leading to an offer to perform on a cruise ship and eventually a globe-trotting or globe-cruising career in travel and entertainment management. And it all started right here in Juno. Juno picked me. It must have happened to you as well. When the opportunity to drop out of uh, school for a semester and go chase that wild dream that I was having, I didn't know who it was, what it was, when it was, where it was, and how it was going to be, but I just knew there was something else out there. So I took that semester off and a long cross-country trip a great trip in the solarium on the Columbia during her uh, maiden voyage summer, and uh, getting off in Juneau, Alaska. Who knew? Wow, that's where the adventure began. 
And I loved that trip up on the ferry. I met people that were all excited about coming up. And there was music in the solarium and stories. And, and it just, the, the, the scenery got better and better. And the excitement got higher, too. It was, it was amazing. So there I was in Juneau. My first eight days, it was like 80 degrees. I never saw any of the weather anybody talked about. But I wasn't worried because more was happening more was happening to me that kind of captured my heart. It was a place that was under the radar, where all could be created and imagined and appreciated. So there I was in a local hotel downtown, which is now the Alaskan, and I was ironing in a kitchen on the third floor, and I was singing a song, had my music going, and somebody knocked on the door, and I thought, oh my goodness, I woke somebody up. But I opened the door, and it was Brian Wells. And he said, who are you? I want you to sing in my band. And well, pretty much the rest is history. I started going to all the different clubs in town, watching how people were doing things, listening. We started practicing every week. And then we got a chance to open up and play at great musical venues. I think my most exciting early memory was opening up for Elvin Bishop at the Armory. Playing at the Armory. The Armory is where the Jack is now. But it was one big square room with poor heating and, and the, 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 the ambience lights were on or off. That was the switch. And uh, everybody in town, they'd come from Montana Creek. They'd come out from Tea Harbor, from Douglas, from North Douglas, from, from all over to come down. And they didn't care what kind of music it was. They just loved the live music and entertainment. So I just assumed that that's how it was everywhere. Everybody that came, no matter what style of music they played, I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to learn how to do it. And I worked with amazing people, not only in my own town, not only in my own area of Alaska, but all over in the Northwest. So it took me out of the chains of a marketing genre discussion. So are you rock? Are you country? Are you jazz? We were everything. Because we got to open up. People would do that Juno, uh, Juno Anchorage Fairbanks run, and they'd need a band to open up for them. And many times I got to be there. It was a really wonderful opportunity. The Folk Festival, another really wonderful opportunity. I remember going in and singing with three different groups of people. It was just really expanding. It was unbiased, and it was beautiful. So, you know... Going down south, again, it got to be a little bit challenging, but the fact that I was up, I was in Alaska, and I was able to do and get great at all styles, so no matter where I went and what I did, people appreciated it, and when they feel the love you're feeling for what you're doing, they love it too. So it was maybe a piece in my puzzle, Do you know, might be a piece in your puzzle, but it gets you where you want to go, and it makes you think about that important time that you're there. Because it op- opened opportunities. I, I did tours with Greg Allman and B.B. King and Jim Pepper and, and worked cruise ships as an entertainer and as entertainment management. But when they say, you're going back to Juneau, Alaska, don't you feel like the mountains are closing you in? And I said, no. I think Juneau, Alaska is an amazing opportunity And I think that when I get out the airport and I'm driving down the Egan and I'm going towards Douglas, I feel that that is a big mother hug. It's like all the mountains embracing you and trying to bring you home. 
So remember, embrace me home. That's where my heart is home is. So that's my story about me and my music and Juneau, Alaska. Emily Mesh has lived in Juneau for two years, one year as a normal person and then one year as an antisocial hermit. When she's not trying to avoid a global pandemic, Emily enjoys finding new ways to shoehorn Billy Joel into every topic of conversation. Although to be fair, she still does that during the pandemic as well. Figuring out that you're transgender comes with the realization that you're going to face some obstacles along the way. It's going to be rewarding, certainly, but it's not always going to be easy. And sometimes those obstacles uh, can pop up in places where you don't expect, that you don't see them until you've already run headlong into them. Sometimes even in your hobbies, like I like to get on stage and I like to perform. And when I do that, I create sort of a, a new layer on top of who I am, and that's the character that I'm portraying for you. So even right now, as I'm speaking to you, uh, because this is this is its own performance, I'm portraying me as a character, but I'm still portraying the character. So um, this version of me is slightly different than the version that I would be if we were talking one-on-one. -on -one. And that becomes more difficult when you're reassessing who the base character underneath it even is in the first place. And that was my experience, especially in the early days of transition. I was trying to sort of strip away all of the uh, influences and messaging that I'd received throughout my whole life that maybe pushed me in a certain direction. And I was trying to figure out who I would be minus those influences. Would I have made different decisions? And uh, that sort of flux of not knowing who I was made it more difficult to add anything on top of that. And again, that was my trans experience. Obviously, everybody's experience is different. Every trans experience is valid. Um, but maybe I've lost some of you. Uh, I should backtrack. I'll, I'll explain this in a different way. Imagine imagine you've got a box, and you've had this box since you were a kid, and uh, it's been there as long as you can remember, and inside this box is some paper, some pens, and some stencils. And you'll regularly go to this box, and you'll use the pens, and you'll use the stencils, and you'll create shapes and images and pictures on the paper, and then that paper is your character. It's what you show to your audience when you perform on stage. And every time you go back to this box, you're developing it a little bit further. Maybe you're making a new stencil or you're building onto an old one and making it more complex and more interesting. Or maybe you're learning new techniques of how to use two stencils together, for example, uh, to make something even more amazing than what you made before. And what happens is by the time you're an adult, you'll end up with this huge library of stencils and an intricate knowledge of how to best make use out of each one. So imagine you're 28 years old and suddenly you realize, hey, there's this other box right over here that I never noticed before. And you look into this box for the first time and you see it's got nicer paper. It's a, it's a thicker cardstock. The colors are more vibrant. 
You look at the pens, they're a name brand that like all of your artist friends always talk about, but you've never used before. But there aren't any stencils. And you look at this box and you go, I would be a lot happier using this box, but it's gonna take a lot of work to get it to a point where I'm happy with it because it doesn't have stencils. I need to make them from scratch. Um, and that's not easy. I have to build back this whole library. So take that scenario and fast forward two years into the future. Let's say you're 30 years old. I'm 30 years old and I just got a job as a tour guide in Skagway. And a part of this job is to uh, create a persona, a character, for your guests while you're leading them around the site. So you're interacting with them as this character rather than as yourself. And I've been developing my stencils in my new box, but they're still very rudimentary. And I show up and uh, I show the character that I've come up with to the tour manager and she says, that's not good enough. And she's right, it's not good enough. So I go home and I look at my stencils and I figure, well, what can I do? And I build and I come up with a new character and I come in the next day and that's not good enough. And she's right, it's not good enough. And this happened for maybe a week, maybe two weeks. And it got to a point where I wasn't entirely sure whether I'd be able to stay the whole summer. So one day after work, I left the employee housing, took a little hike up to Smuggler's Cove, just out of sight of town. And I found this little section of trail and I was pacing back and forth trying to figure out what I could do, trying to figure out how I was going to save my summer. And something clicked. And I realized I could still use the stencils from my old box. This is a character. This isn't me. This is a new layer. This is a costume that I'm putting on. What does it matter if my character is the same gender that I am? So I did a little bit of thinking. And I came up with this voice. And I like this voice. It felt very folksy. It felt very 1898. And I did a little bit more thinking. And I came up with a name for this voice. And the name that I came up with was Grizzly Jefferson. And suddenly I had a voice. And I had a name. And with the voice and with the name you got a character. So I went in to uh, work the next day. And I showed this character to the tour manager. I introduced her to Grizzly Jefferson and she goes, wow, that is a fantastic character. Let's get you a costume. So we got me a costume. And from that day forward, I was Grizzly Jefferson. When I was talking to guests, I was interacting with this in this folksy manner and I would tell them jokes and I came up with these ill-advised bear puns and I had a theme song and it went like this. Welcome to Georgetown, where gold always flows. Right here in Skyway, just under your nose. Stuck in a time warp, the years never show. Georgetown, I salute you from my head to my toe. But every day, uh, when I finish my shift, I will go back to the employee housing, and I would take off my costume, and I'd be Emily again. And it was nice to have Grizzly Jefferson during the day, but when I was on my own, when I was me, I was still Emily. And that's what was important. Our final storyteller is Mudroom Storyboard member Kristen Rankin. Kristen is originally from Ohio and is incredibly grateful to have lived on Plinkett Ani for almost three years now. As an improviser, 
Kristen sees things that aren't actually there. And as an actor with local theater groups, she pretends to be other people. She is honored to serve on the Mudroom Storyboard, and we are lucky to have her. And please don't tell anyone, but Kristen has more Scottish ancestry than she does Irish. Please welcome Kristen. Irish dance was everything to me for 10 years of my life. When I first saw River Dance on TV at my aunt's house, I was captivated. The rhythmic beats of the hard shoes, very similar to tap, and the lifts and leaps in what are simply called soft shoes. And the music, the reels, jigs, hornpipes, how could you not leap to your feet and move? My parents, seeing my fascination, graciously enrolled me in classes at age 11. And turns out I liked doing it even more than watching it on TV. I loved learning what it meant to memorize movement, to do that to a beat, and to create beautiful dance. I was so drawn in to all the people at this school. The big kids and their fancy moves were downright awe-inspiring. And with my classmates, I got to explore new things to do and weird blisters that your feet got. At that time, in the mid to late 90s, Irish dance was becoming very popular in the United States. With the hype of Michael Flatley and Riverdance, hordes of young ones like myself were pouring into the scene. And with this, tiny local competitions grew bigger and bigger, and the bar of what was excellent Irish dance got higher and higher. At these competitions, you mainly competed solo, though there were some group dances. Kids and their dance parents put a lot of pressure on themselves to be perfect. In all dances, you were constantly on your toes, feet turned out and pointed, legs crossed, arms stiff by your sides, excellent posture, perfect timing with the music, and so many other elements to keep in mind. And I got very into all of this, and even the competitiveness, and loved the feel of that first place medal in my sweaty little hands. Once a year, though, all that changed. We let our hair down, literally and figuratively, stopped caring about what judges would think, and prepared for the holiday of holidays of Irish Americans and many drunken wannabes, St. Patrick's Day. For several weeks around this holiday, we pulled out the performance pieces, mainly group dances, and performance costumes, we danced for nursing homes, schools, even bars. This was just a chance to entertain, to share Irish culture, and to let loose. Nobody in the audience knew nor cared about your technique. I sometimes had a hard time letting that go, of course. I, growing up, was so conscious of what I should look like and what I should do, even in dance. I had to be part of the team, and I had to do it right. When I was maybe 16 years old, 
there was this one particular performance. Things were going well, the audience is into it. We're tired from the St. Patrick's Day season, but the next number is a fun one. There's this great crescendo to it. You've got cute kids doing a jig, older girls doing a peppy reel with great synchronous leaps, and it all builds to this specific moment. The older kids line up behind a row of younger ones, and to this building reel music, the two lines mesh together, every other uh, older girl, younger girl, they all dance in a circle, and at the pinnacle, the younger ones leap up, and the older ones, arms linked together, catch the younger ones by the arch of their backs, and they all whirl around in a great big circle. At this performance, though, right before the older girls were supposed to come on, there was some confusion off stage. Are our numbers off? How many little ones were out there? Do we have too many older kids? I might have been the one who was the most convinced of this problem. And so said, no, 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 that's all we need. Just get out there. I'll be the one to stay behind. So the older girls go out, the lines mesh, and we are missing someone. Me. My eyes go wide and my stomach drops. There are two little girls arched back in the air, desperately clinging to each other's hands across the space needed to complete the group circle and over where there is supposed to be another body. As the centrifugal force slowly wrenches them apart, And there are two older girls who are muscling up this second person alone as I am not there to help them carry the kids. The audience gasps and my teacher is trying to find her everything's fine face as she stands visible to the audience. And I am just there on the side, waiting for an eight-year-old to lose their grip and just fly into the crowd. What have I done? Do I jump back in? This is no river dance. They don't have dancers making rash judgment calls and just opting out of that iconic final lineup, thinking, eh, better not, and leaving a gap in the line. This is where retrospect and self-awareness is really helpful, by the way that I was a teenager with moderate abilities at a small performance in Western Ohio. Let's all remember that. In the moment, I am mortified, but the group hangs on and they set down before there are any child projectiles. After the performance in the back room, the world having ended, there are profuse apologies from me and very kind responses from everyone else. Still though, it rankled, and as I packed up my costumes and my shoes, I thought about the end of the St. Patrick's Day season and going back to those solo competitions where, while it was still tough, I didn't have to worry about catching any airborne eight-year-olds.
A year ago, when the Mudroom Storyboard began planning for the 2020-2021 season, we envisioned a big 10th anniversary year. Like so many best-laid plans during this COVID-19 time, that was not to be. Refusing to let it go, but realizing we couldn't put on a full season, we shifted to a shortened audio-only series we called Mudroom Season 9.5, and we are grateful to our storytellers for stepping up, adapting with us, and sharing their memories and experiences. From beers with the Sandinistas to teaching in a pandemic, our storytellers fiddled with phone recordings and connected with us by Zoom to bring you their stories. The local organizations for which you raised funds also adapted this year, sharing Facebook posts instead of intermission cookies and coffee. We don't know what next season will bring, but the Mudroom Storyboard is very thankful to be in this community with you, and we look forward to bringing together more of your stories next year.